You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. Well, good morning. If it's good that we gather, would you say amen? Amen. If it's good to be in the house of the Lord, would you say amen? Amen. Uh, Well, before we dive into our message this morning, I feel that there's something that we ought to do first, and I'd like to start by inviting the ladies of Andrew's House of Hope onto the platform. Um, While they're on their way up, uh, I want to do a little exercise that's going to involve some congregation participation. If you have supported the work that these ladies have done uh, over this growing season by purchasing flowers or vegetables, baked goods, jams, salsas, so on and so forth... Would you raise your hand? Go ahead, raise your hand, raise it high. It may have seemed like a small thing to you, but choosing to invest in these women in this way has been encouragement and empowerment to them in this season as they continue in their journey to holistic recovery. Uh, I'm joined on the platform by Diane, Sarah, and Teddy, and I wonder if you're grateful for the beautiful things that they've created and you appreciate the ways in which they've given of themselves to serve. Would you give them a round of applause? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I want to take a moment to recognize uh, Diane and Jessica in particular. Unfortunately, Jessica couldn't be here with us today. Uh, Not only as they have been the creative minds in the kitchen, but they've also put um, so many hours of hard work into the garden. I just want to take a moment to recognize all of that hard work, so thank you. Uh, As the ladies make their way back to their seats, would you just give them another round of applause, make them feel the love? Uh, I also want to recognize the many volunteers that have helped to make the garden a reality. If you've spent any time in a garden, you know that even a small patch of land can be a lot of work, and to open up on year one with over an acre would be all but impossible if it wasn't for those of you that have given of yourselves to make it a success. So I would like to personally thank Don and Amy, Linda, Bill, Deb, Dennis, Mike, and all of those that have helped to make the Garden of Hope a success, and we look forward to next year's growing season. So again, thank you all for helping make this ministry a reality and a means by which we get to participate in Christ's ministry of healing and redemption. So thank you. You It's been a secret dream of mine to do a solo at church. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) And thank God I'm not going to do that today. Um, I just wanted to share a quick story with you. Um, I think it was back in February Wes and Jonathan and myself took a little road trip up in the Cleveland area and we visited a recovery house that had a similar uh, farm project, if you will. And we were just picking their brain a little bit to see you know, what, what we might think would work. And on the ride home, I, I was just verbalizing some concerns, some thoughts, and um, you know, who might head this project up? Um, you know, my husband, he does great with a honeydew list, but a project of this magnitude, I just wasn't sure. And, and I was a, a little stressed out about it. You know, where would I find somebody that would be willing to do that? And much to my dismay, as he was driving, 
Wes said, well, I'd like to do that. I'd like to be the trainer for this project. And so I'm not sure if any or all of you know that Wes is the backbone behind this project. Did you all know that? Um, we came to a bit of a, an agreement that he would spend, you know, a few hours a week heading this up. Last spring, the hallways of the church were lined with grow lights and seating trays and um, probably spent far more than a, a full-time position heading up this project. So we just wanted to take a moment, the ladies and I, to recognize him and thank him for all of his work as well. Thanks, Thank you. Well, what a surprise. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, not that anyone came to church this morning wondering about some of my personal favorite music, but I'm going to tell you about one regardless. One of my favorite songs of all time is a song called Hymn 101. Uh, it's not a hymn as we traditionally think about them in the church, but it's a retelling of the gospel story from the perspective of Jesus. And there's a line in this song that I think about a lot. I think about it as I read the Gospels, and I've been thinking about it particularly as we've been in this series, trying to digest these difficult sayings of Jesus. There's a verse in this song, and it goes like this. I've come here to ignore your cries and heartaches. I've come to closely listen to you sing. I've come here to insist that I leave here with a kiss. I've come to say exactly what I mean. And I mean so many things. I've come to say exactly what I mean, and I mean so many things. I think that this is precisely the tension that we've been wrestling with in this series as we explore the teachings of Jesus, this notion that Jesus comes speaking very plainly, but yet every word seems to be loaded with metaphor, reference, exaggeration, authority, finality, mystery. Jesus comes speaking plainly, and yet it would seem that only those with eyes to see and ears to hear have the capacity to understand what it is that he's trying to say, the meaning behind the message, the text within the text. And I guess I say all of that to say that our text this week is somewhat paradoxical. It's confusing on the surface. It seems contrary to the character of Jesus that is often revealed to us in scripture. But my hope is that after spending some time wrestling with it this morning, we may gain some sense of what it is that Jesus was saying and how he may be speaking to us today. And I realize that this is a lot by way of disclaimer and introduction, but I'd also like to add one more thing before we dive in. My sense is that we're often convinced that we are the enlightened ones. We have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And by the grace of God, I believe that the Spirit is giving us vision and opening our eyes. But particularly as we read the Gospels, it's tempting to put ourselves into the role of the faithful ones and to scoff at those scribes, those Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, not recognizing that in many ways, we might not be so different from them. So as we look at our text this morning, my word for us today is, humility. My prayer is that God would give us the humility we need to see and to hear rightly, because it's possible 
that we don't see as well as we think we do. But if we have the humility, we might be able to catch a glimpse of the kingdom. Or to put it in Jesus' words, whoever becomes humble like a child becomes the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So now with our disclaimers and prerequisites out of the way, let's take a look at our text. We'll be reading from the book of Matthew this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to follow along. If not, you can follow along with the text on the screen. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 10, and we're going to be reading verses 34 to 39. So these are the words of Jesus as he's speaking to his disciples. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. This is a troubling passage. It seems problematic in a lot of ways. In just a few weeks, we're going to be entering into one of my favorite seasons of the church calendar, the Advent season. And what is that beloved prophecy that points us to Christ in the writings of Isaiah? For a child is born for us, a son given to us, authority rests on his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's right. But I've got to say, I'm not getting super strong Prince of Peace vibes from our reading in Matthew this morning. Or we can look a few chapters earlier in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. One of Jesus' most widely known sermons, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. But in our passage today, Jesus himself says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. When you put these passages next to each other, side by side, you begin to hear the discord, right? You start to feel the tension. And furthermore, if you were to read this passage in isolation and out of its context, it would be all too easy to wind up with a misshapen interpretation of Jesus's words. So I think that one of the first questions I want to ask is, what does Jesus mean when he says peace. When Jesus talks about peace in this passage, that thing that he has not come to bring, what is he talking about? Because he then goes on to give a pretty bleak picture of what following him could mean for our most intimate relationships. So I think it's important to start by asking, how is Jesus using the word peace? I think that in recent years, it's been uh, the trendy thing to take these online personality profiles. I'm sure you guys are familiar with some of them. Uh, Strengths Finders, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, which Hogwarts house would you be sorted into? Uh, I've personally taken some of these, and between these assessments and honest friends, the feedback that I usually get is that I tend to be what people often call a peacemaker. And on the surface... This sounds like a lovely name. I've certainly been called worse. You may even think to yourself, huh, well, in light of the Beatitudes, what a blessed thing. But I've learned that this label peacemaker is typically just a euphemism for the tendency that we peacemakers have to avoid conflict. The 
tendency towards peace, peace usually has less to do with bringing about unity and more to do with preserving an environment that on the surface feels peaceful. It's easier to keep the peace than face the truth because the truth might necessitate conflict and conflict is uncomfortable. But peace that is unwilling to address the truth is not peace at all. Peace that is unwilling to address the truth is not peace at all. Peace that primarily values comfort over speaking the truth or peace that primarily values comfort over hearing the truth is really more of a selfish undertaking. It has more to do with my comfort than bringing about a peaceable kingdom. And I think that this misplaced sense of peace is what Jesus might be addressing in this passage. Maybe we can even read the words of Jesus like this. Do not think that I have come to make your lives comfortable. I have not come to bring that kind of comfort. I've come with a sword. And maybe that sword is something like the truth. It's also helpful to look at this passage in the context of the rest of the chapter. In chapter 10, Jesus has summoned his 12 disciples and is preparing to send them out on a mission to proclaim the good news, that good news being that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so Jesus has commissioned his followers to go out into the surrounding towns and to let the Jewish people know that God's kingdom is being established on earth in the person of Jesus, in the incarnation. God's kingdom is being established through his dwelling with humanity. And so part of the question being asked is what does it now mean to be a Jew? In light of God becoming man, what does it mean to be the people of God? As God in Jesus is establishing his kingdom in a new way, how are the people of God to respond? And in this passage, in essence, Jesus says, the new way to be the people of God is to follow me. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Now that God has come to dwell with his creation as his creation, the right way to be the people of God is to follow Jesus. And I think that what Jesus is telling his disciples in this passage is that following him is not going to be a comfortable life. In fact, if they're being called to follow the one who chooses to pick up his cross, they too will have to decide to sacrifice everything in pursuit of Jesus. There's a theological concept that's prevalent in the evangelical church that has always been troubling to me. And that's the idea of free grace. I think the idea is that God's mercy, God's forgiveness, his love, his grace requires no transaction. His grace is free and is accessible to all. And of course, I think that God is accessible to all, but I worry that what is often conveyed is that the life of Christ won't require anything of you, it's free. If you simply accept Jesus into your heart, you will have accomplished all that is required of you for salvation. The problem is, throughout the gospels, Jesus never once asks anyone to accept him into their hearts. What he does say is, follow me, pick up my cross, 
repent and believe for the kingdom of God has come near. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this life that Jesus is calling his followers to doesn't cost them merely anything. It costs his followers everything. In the gospel narrative, when the potential follower comes to Jesus and says, Lord, first let me go bury my father, Jesus says to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead, which echoes our reading this morning, follow, uh, uh, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. In fact, when Jesus' own mother comes looking for him, trying to speak to him as he is ministering to the crowds, Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my mother and sister and brother. Again, echoing this morning's text, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Jesus comes calling his followers to sacrifice absolutely everything in the same way that he lived a life of sacrifice. But the strange mystery of the kingdom of God is that in resigning ourselves to everything, in choosing to follow Jesus, in making our lives a sacrifice to God, we find that God gives us something better than that which we put on the altar. In choosing to follow Jesus, in making our lives a sacrifice to God, we find that God gives us something better than that which we put on the altar. And this might sound radical, but I think that the establishment of the kingdom of God is also the reorientation of how we understand family. And I think that what Jesus is communicating, and I think that's what Jesus is communicating to his disciples in this passage. Our first calling is to the family of God, the family of the followers of Christ. In fact, it's possible that we don't even know what family is or how family ought to be outside of the family of Christ followers. It's through the family of God that we come to understand how it is we are to order our families. And here Jesus makes it very clear that we are to order our family life around the life of Christ. I'm reminded of the story of Abraham in the Old Testament. God calls Abraham out of his homeland and to go into the nations where he is to bless all the families of the earth, right? This is the mission of Abraham, to be the blessing of God to all people. And through his obedience, God promises to make Abraham a father and to give him many descendants that would also serve to bless the world. And if you know this story, you know just how absurd a promise this seems because Abraham and his wife are already elderly at this point. But despite this, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, bear a son, Isaac, and in a strange turn of events, God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. This is strange not only because one of the things that differentiates the God of Israel from the pagan gods is that God had never been known to require human sacrifice, but putting that off to the side, from Abraham's perspective, this is completely backwards. God promised him Isaac and that he would be the father to many. How in the world could this possibly be if God is now calling him to sacrifice that dream, if God is calling him to sacrifice Isaac? As God 
ultimately spares Abraham from having to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham learns that it's only when he is willing to let go of everything that he can be used by God. And I think that Jesus is giving his disciples a similar message in this passage. It's only when we are willing to surrender the entirety of our lives that we are able to join God in his ministry of blessing. So if God's desire is to establish a peaceable kingdom, to create a greater family out of strangers and aliens, then why in the world does he come to us saying, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be members of one's own household. This seems much more militant than it does peaceful. But I think it's significant to note that these words of Jesus are also a quote from the prophet Micah, whose ministry to Israel was century prior to seven centuries prior to the birth of Jesus. And what Micah was seeing was that the godlessness and corruption of the people of Israel was becoming so severe that even the family units were beginning to degrade. Within one's own house, man was turned against father and daughter turned against her mother. But now as Jesus uses these words, he kind of flips that on its head. Micah says, your families are fracturing because you have been godless. And Jesus says, if you choose to follow me, the things that I require of you have the potential to fracture even your family. Crazy, right? Jesus comes calling us to righteousness. And that righteousness is radically countercultural. And I think what Jesus is saying is that the life of holiness, that is a life in pursuit of Jesus, is fundamentally incompatible with godlessness, with mindlessness. He makes clear that he is uninterested in anything less than wholehearted pursuit, even to the degree that his followers would have to choose between him or their family. Jesus says, you can follow me or you can bury your father, but the choice you make determines where your priorities lie. I also want to be clear about what Jesus is not saying. As polarizing as the last couple of years have been, Jesus isn't calling his followers to sever family relationships because you're convinced that you're right nor is he condoning some strange sense of irresponsibility to our families because maybe they don't think the same way that we do. What Jesus is saying is that he wants us to be his disciples. I think that there are two important things that I want to focus on in this passage. The first is that Christ has called his followers to join him in his suffering. The God that gave his life and his body as a sacrifice has called us to join him in the brokenness of his body, to give and to love for the life of the world. And this is a radical and countercultural thing. It's not an inherently comfortable thing. In Jesus, we find that the path to life leads us first through death. Or to use Paul's language, we put to death our old selves. When Jesus calls us to take up the cross and follow him, he is calling us to a life of sacrifice. 
giving ourselves completely to God for the life of the world. So that like Abraham, we can fulfill the promise of God to be a blessing to the world and bring about a peaceable kingdom. But the second thing that I think we need to see in tandem with this sacrificial nature is that God is establishing his new kingdom through the giving of his life. He is also calling us to participate in his new family, in the family of God. I think that a facet of what Jesus is communicating in this passage is that we only know what it means to be a loving mother or father through first giving ourselves to the family of God. We only know what it means to be a caring sister or brother through participating in the life of Christ. We come to truly understand what life and what faithful family is through the faithful participation in the body of Christ. At the beginning of the message, I mentioned that this passage was troubling, that it was problematic, but I hope that you see now that it is troubling. It is problematic. It's problematic to think that Jesus could want only part of our devotion, only a part of ourselves. The manner in which Jesus calls us to follow him will disrupt our quiet, comfortable lives. It's troubling to follow a suffering savior and think that we could be exempt from his suffering. It makes me anxious thinking about explaining away the teachings of Jesus that are maybe difficult for us to hear in a sense, um, softening his words to make them more compatible with our lives. I think it's tempting to say, well, what we have here is a case of Jesus making an exaggeration in an effort to drive his point home. But I think that Jesus actually wants us to follow him. I think that Jesus actually wants us to give all of ourselves to him. God is establishing a new family that reorients all other senses of family. And he's calling us to join him in his mission to bless the world. If you've heard truth this morning, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. Um, In a moment, I'm going to dismiss us and we'll go from this place. But first, would you stand and pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the gift of life today. We thank you for your spirit that is still breathing, that is still animating. We thank you for the ways in which you have called us to join you in your ministry of healing and redemption and reconciliation. Would you teach us what it is to follow after you? Would you teach us to lose our life for your sake that we might find it in you? We ask that your presence would be near to us. Would you be encouraging us and emboldening us? Would you teach us what it is to be members of your family? We ask that as your spirit is moving in the gathering of your people this morning, that you would be transforming our hearts, that you would be transforming our minds. Make us more like you. We love you. We pray this all in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. You can go in peace.
Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.